From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is the technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. We also upload these shows to my Rumble channel. So go to rumble.com, search for Richard Serrett's Strange Planet under channels and subscribe there too. Because at some point, I suspect we'll be moving everything over there. We're not live streaming on Rumble yet, but at some point we probably will. Author, blogger, historian, Don Jeffries is here for the full two hours. His 2019 book, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, has just been released in paperback. It's an updated version, a couple of new chapters. Please take a moment and visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. There's a a new t-shirt available in the Strange Planet shop. Truth Gets You Crucified which is uh, across the front of the jersey. Truth gets you crucified, and a verse on the back from Matthew chapter 23, verses 27-28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and religious leaders, you hypocrites. On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So check it out. Many, many other t-shirt designs there as well in my Strange Planet shop at strangeplanet.ca. All right, I'm leaving for Greece tomorrow afternoon, and I'll be there for a month. But we will continue to bring brand new programs each week, even in my absence. Next week's program will not be live. It'll be brand new, however. It'll be pre-recorded in Greece. Micah Hanks is a writer, podcaster, researcher whose interests include history and science, current events, cultural studies, technology, philosophy, unexplained phenomenon. He'll be with me. Then the following week, tonight's guest, actually, Don Jeffries, will be guest hosting. His guest in the first hour will be Janet Phelan, an investigative reporter at large, exposing corruption, abuse, and crime. And her new book is At the Breaking Point of History, How Decades of U.S. Duplicity Enabled the Pandemic. And then the following week, Ali Siadatan will be my special guest host. And uh, we're hoping to have Jonathan Kahn, author of The Harbinger and The Harbinger 2, The Return, on the program for two hours with Alicia Adetan. The week after that, there'll be another pre-recorded show coming to you from Greece. Crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 1776 to 1963. Again, the updated paperback edition. Don Jeffries has been researching the JFK assassination since the mid-70s when he was a teenage volunteer for Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry. He's also very active on all the JFK assassination forums. He's been a moderator on the London Spartacus Education Forum for several years. His first published book, uh, a work of fiction, the acclaimed 2007 novel, The Unreals, has been compared to Alice in Wonderland and The Wizard of Oz. And uh, then he wrote a series of nonfiction books, beginning with Survival of the, uh, sorry, Hidden History, then Survival of the Richest, Bullyocracy, and uh, as I mentioned, Crimes and Cover-Ups in 2019, now updated paperback edition. Don, welcome. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Richard. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, my friend. So, 
as I said, the book came out in 2019. And obviously, the world has completely changed in just two years, less than two years since the book came out. Is there anything to compare the profoundness of this change and how quickly it happened and how long lasting it is likely to be to any other period in American history? No, I don't think anything remote. I mean, the, the only possible comparison maybe would be the Civil War, the war between the states, and, and certainly what came after it because that was a drastic transformation. Most people don't seem to realize what a transformation it was. And not only did almost a million people die, a million Americans die at the hands of other Americans, but we went through a decade or so of Reconstruction, which uh, we had military occupation of the South. That eventually led to horrible things like uh, Jim Crow laws and 100 years of real racism and white supremacy in the South. So uh, a lot of bad things happened because of that. But I think really only maybe that 10-year period or something in the Civil War and just after it would be close to this. But even that is – because that was obviously confined to America. What we're looking at now is certainly a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, just look at Victoria, Australia. If you want to see a future of that's the Orwell's picture of uh, you know human boots stamping on a human face forever, I'm conjured up when I see what's going on in Victoria, Australia. So no, I, I think we're living in unprecedented times. So the updated version contains two new chapters. Is it two? I believe. Yes. Yes. One is uh, the history of un-Americanism, and the other is what? The other is just an updated for, and that's where I, I basically talk a little bit about the Trump phenomenon and. I think I touched a little bit on on the beginning of the COVID narrative, whatever you want to call it, but I couldn't do it justice in that little bit of time. And I, I really, you know, to actually try to bring it up to date as far as what I just I didn't think it really fit there. They wanted me to write a couple of new chapters. But since this book, that would have probably been more appropriate if I'd written a, a new edition of Hidden History, because that was basically the more modern version. That was from the Kennedy assassination up until at that time, the Obama years. But this was – Crimes and Cover-Ups was basically a prequel to that, and it goes from the founding of the republic up until – I don't address the JFK assassination in this book, but right up until you know the end of the 50s, early 60s. So uh, really to try to jump into what we're going through now, I mean I think it's, it's just it's, – it's relevant because I think if we see all the things that happened in the past, certainly – and if you see uh, the past is a precursor, so if you see all these things that took place, we can see maybe reasons why certain things are happening today. But with the COVID narrative and the lockdown and everything, I don't, I don't think anything that in, in American history could prepare us for that. Except, you know, as you point out in the history of un-Americanism, there are some interesting parallels that we see echo throughout America's history, starting with John Adams, the second president, and that is – the Alien and Sedition Act, and it's gone by different names. Let's, let's spend some time talking about the uh, Alien and Sedition Act throughout America's history, really. Right. Well, you had the Alien and Sedition Acts under John Adams, which were uh, very unpopular, uh, and uh, Thomas Jefferson basically used that as the main focus of his presidential campaign against Adams, which he won. And they were enemies for a while, and then later, of course, they became great friends, and America has uh, – history gave us some great letters back and forth between them. But basically until that time, then, of course, you had Lincoln, who Lincoln set so many terrible precedents. He didn't have to pass any Yale and Sedition Acts because Lincoln just basically did what he wanted. He said, I'm the commander-in-chief. There's an insurrection. Insurrection <laughs> sounds familiar nowadays. And so he uh, – suspended the writ of habeas corpus. And what we see happening in Washington, D.C. now with the political prisoners and still 
there since January 6th. Again, they can cite that as precedent because Abraham Lincoln rounded up untold thousands of people, northerners, and threw them in makeshift prisons without charge, without bail. And you can see what's happening in today. Uh, a, lot of these, a lot of them, people in Washington, D.C., were not uh, given any bail. They weren't there on any charges, and the little-known fact is that no one has been charged with insurrection, although they continue to be called insurrectionists. But after Lincoln, then you had Woodrow Wilson revived the Alien and Sedition Acts in uh, 1918, and he used uh, Lincoln's precedent to throw people like Eugene Debs and Honest Socialists and other World War I protesters in prison. And uh, one of the facts that I unearthed in my, that I didn't know, as a free speech purist, this was very significant to me, where when Wilson was imprisoning these people, naturally they objected to it and took it to the Supreme Court because it was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court ruled in Wilson's favor behind the liberal justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is revered by court historians. And that is where the phrase, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater comes from. I don't think very many Americans know it comes from that decision. And until 1918, no one had heard of that. Obviously, they didn't put an asterisk on the First Amendment. But however you look at it, the World War I protesters were not yelling fire in a crowded theater. So I think that was ridiculous that he, that he used something like that. And then, of course, in World War II, you had Franklin Roosevelt used, again, the precedents of Wilson and Lincoln to incarcerate not only Japanese Americans, who at least later their descendants got some reparations, but also German Americans and even a small number of Italian Americans put them in concentration camps. Again, this was all done under the same kind of precedent that Lincoln set. And then even all the way until um, the treatment of the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay under President George W. Bush, John Yu, his attorney, justified the treatment of the prisoners there and the incarceration of there without trial for years, again, going back to Lincoln and the precedent set by Wilson and Roosevelt. So I don't know if there's going to be any legal challenges to what's going on in Washington, D.C. now with the so-called insurrectionists, but if there were, you can be assured that the people prosecuting this and defending the right to keep them in there without charges will cite the precedents of those past presidents. So the, when these things happen, you know, we, we need to learn from history because when, when they're allowed to happen and they're respected, I mean, the court historians don't talk about any of this that I do. They think Lincoln was fine. I mean, they kind of shrug and say, well, yeah, he did suspend the writ of habeas corpus. And Woodrow Wilson, well, you know, how many of you, I, I've never heard anybody until I discovered it myself that traces the line about you can't yell fire in a crowded theater to the World War I protesters. That's where it came from. Nobody does that. People, for Japanese Americans, anyhow, nobody talks about the Germans and Italian Americans that were incarcerated in concentration camps. But I think most people say, well, yeah, we shouldn't have done that, and so we paid them reparations. And a lot of people you know, say, well, we don't support torture, so we don't like what's going on in Guantanamo Bay. But very few people apparently are worried or, or care very much about the political prisoners that are in Washington, D.C. today, but it's a direct timeline of history that led to this. Just getting back to uh, John Adams for a minute, I want to just pick up on some of these threats because you covered a huge swath of history there brilliantly and very succinctly. What was going on in America in the uh, the very early 19th century when Adams was president? They weren't at war. Why did he need to invoke an Alien and Sedition Act. Why did he need to jail people who, um, I guess, you know, uttered uh, threats against the American government? Not even threats, just even criticized the U.S. government. Why? What was going on in America then? 
Well, again, just from my, you know, I, I, I'm a I'm a community college dropout, so I'm no I'm no court historian. I'm an armchair historian, as uh, the way I like to term it. But uh, I do have studied history, and just from what I know of John Adams' personality, he was an incredibly vain guy, and I just think he was, you know, he was offended by people criticizing him. I don't. I think he had a very thin skin. And I personally think that uh, the reason he wanted to throw people in jail, well, that was a, a lot to do with personal reasons. As you mentioned, we weren't at war with anyone, so they couldn't justify that. So I think it had a lot to do with his vanity. But, you know, that's my speculation. Uh, but I don't, I don't see any other political reason for him to have done it. And, and really, Adams is uh, studying, especially John Quincy Adams, who I like even better than John Adams. They were brilliant men, and uh, I would certainly not have been a Federalist. I would have been on Jefferson's side as a Democrat-Republican, but – uh, I, I can understand a lot of the point of view he had. He was a brilliant guy, and he was certainly instrumental to the American Revolution. But I, I think he he made the uh, horrible mistake of uh, setting into motion those kinds of acts, which unfortunately have been used by more unscrupulous leaders like Lincoln and uh, Wilson and Roosevelt, who I think were different caliber of men than John Adams, uh, for even uh, worse purposes. But I, I personally, I just think it had to do with his his vain personality. Let me let me play devil's advocate here with uh, Lincoln. Uh, the, the country was being torn apart. It was an existential threat to the country. What what else would he could he have done? I mean, these were these were extraordinary times. Yes, he took extraordinary measures. He he probably agonized over them. I I'm guessing. I don't know what. How do you respond? Well, I think you know if if you look at if you look at uh, the original, the original states that were going to secede were, I believe, uh, seven states, and uh, they, for whatever reason, and Lincoln should have recognized. But this, I think, you had, to, you need to look at Lincoln's real history, his real personality, and what people said about him. Lincoln uh, was not a man of the people. Lincoln was a corporate lawyer. He represented the, unlike my hero Huey Long, who never took a case against a poor man. Uh, Lincoln never represented a poor man. Lincoln always represented the banks and the corporate interests, the railroads. Uh, so he was a corporate kind of a guy. He was not a man of the people. He wasn't a rail splitter. So when he came into office, I think he had a uh, he had he had a, had a lot of vanity himself as well. But I think that instead of allowing uh, to uh, these original seven states to secede. Which, if they had done, they had every right to do that. He, Lincoln should have recognized that. Oh, this is exactly what the original colonies did. They seceded from Great Britain. This was the the idea of our founding. And there are tons of quotes which I put in the book that you know that from Jefferson and all the founding fathers that you know this is if the the people have every right to alter or abolish the government when it no longer suits their needs. I mean, the quotes are out there. Clearly, their intent was clear that maybe this wasn't this wasn't intended to be all forever. You know, if you if you don't like it, I mean, the whole concept, and that's what I stress all the time, that the founding principle of the American Revolution was the consent to the governed, that people everywhere have a right to consent to those who govern them. That was why they fought for independence, why they broke away from England. So however you look at it, I mean, the southern states could have been, you know, tobacco, drool, dripping slave owners. However you look at them, they no longer consented. To the government that they were under at that point, and they want, they said, you know, we want to break away just like the colonies did. So Lincoln should have recognized that, and he also should have been shrewd enough when he was a shrewd politician to look and say, well, okay, you know, these seven states, they're, they're not going to have an, be able to make an economy. 
in the middle of all these others. So they'll, they'll probably stay away from a year or so, and, and uh, then they'll realize they can't make it, and they'll come back to us with a tail between their legs. That's what he should have done. But when he, when he started, he started playing hardball as soon as he got in the office. And Lincoln has showed no flexibility at all. And I have his quotes in there where he, he literally would not negotiate with them about anything. You must come back in the union. That's it. The union is sacrosanct. And Lincoln is the one who made this union out to be whole, a union with a capital U. And again, before the Civil War, you don't see, you don't see these references to the holy union. Uh, before that, all you need to know about the, how things changed in the Civil War was that before the Civil War, uh, the United States was considered a plural when you talked about the United States, you said the United States are. After the Civil War, it's the always and still is the United States is. It became a singular. And that was the defining, I think. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, you know, the, the states, the original states, they were loose confederate. And it's very interesting. They called themselves a confederacy. The colonies did, which is, of course, the name that the, 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 the confederacy chose. And the, you know, this is the southern secessionists did. But because Lincoln pushed this on, because he invaded Baltimore with such a heavy hand with northern troops, that's when the other states got in, uh, in, involved, the other six states, including Virginia under Robert E. Lee, which uh, Robert E. Lee was their first choice to, uh, to lead the, uh, the federal troops, the northern troops. Lee was not you know, a, 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 a tremendous uh, confederate. He, he would, didn't even really support it at first, but he said, it's my state, because in those days, they, people supported their state. They didn't necessarily think of themselves as Americans. They thought of themselves, in his case, as a Virginian first. It was about states' rights. So when, he, when Lincoln played hardball, instead of trying to just kind of letting them go their own way and see what happens, I mean, what's the worst could have happened? They, I, I don't think that they would have been able to make a, a viable uh, effort within the continental United States. But instead, he played uh, hardball. He put that human foot on the face. And uh, the other states came in, and they made a more formidable force with 13 states. And so I think that Lincoln should have negotiated. He should have been flexible. He should have recognized that people had that right. In fact, I, I talk about Lincoln's speech, who he very rightly opposed uh, President Polk. Who president Polk was the first president, James K. Polk, to overstep his constitutional authority when he pushed war on Mexico. And we can see the disasters from that even today. Groups, radical groups like La Raza would not exist if it wasn't for that Mexico war. And they did steal land and they had, atrocities were committed there. And uh, Congressman Abraham Lincoln made a great speech from the floor of the House uh, where he used the exact same language that the secessionists would use 20 years later. And uh, I, I guess he didn't read his own words because, you know, he basically said, Say, this is foolish. They have a right to, you know, uh, read the speech. It's, a, it's in uh, – is in the book, but so I think Lincoln it, was not flexible. He was not a negotiator. He pushed this idea that the union was it, and he also pushed the idea that because because they, they really we we've been told that they were at war. The nation really wasn't at war. One group was trying to lead. You'll you'll never see any example. The South didn't invade the North anywhere. I mean, the Virginians could have attacked Washington D.C. They they just they were fighting a defensive battle. The North pushed. The war. They invaded everywhere. That's why in the South, uh, for a long time, they called it the War of Northern Aggression. So this really wasn't a war where, you know, it was, it was basically one side defending their turf because they just wanted to be left alone and they wanted to have their own government. Lincoln wouldn't allow that. And I think that, you know, even if you believe in the rightness of his cause, was it worse almost a million lives? I mean, a quarter of the Southern men, of the Southern males, 
died. A quarter of the population is like a you know a giant black plague. Don, I got to uh, jump in here. We've got to take a, a time out. Don Jeffrey stays with us. Crimes and cover-ups in American politics. The uh, updated paperback edition will tell you how to get a copy. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. John Jeffries stays with us for the full two hours. Crimes and cover-ups in American politics, 1776 to 1963. The updated paperback edition now available. How do we get a copy, Don? Oh, you can Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I mean, anywhere. It's, it's technically, I think it's. Uh, I mean, it's been available for pre-sale, but pre-sale on Amazon and elsewhere. I think it technically is released October nineteenth. So it's not. We're not quite there yet, but I'm obviously promoting it because uh, I have invested interest here because I'm writing. Hidden History 3, which the publisher actually requested early on, and I'm almost done, but uh, they're kind of, uh, because I guess because of uh, the economic situation and uh, maybe they're shying away from conspiracy-type books, but uh, whether or not they publish that apparently is going to be based on the sales of this paperback, so I hope everyone that supports me will go out and get it so uh, that I, I, I can have them publish it, uh, Hidden History 3. All right. Um, the... Um House Un-American Activities. We're going to jump, obviously, ahead quite a bit here. The, um, the history of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, this idea that, um, you know, I guess it's kind of an offshoot of the Alien and Sedition uh, yeah. Act, right? The, the, yeah, same mindset, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so how did it begin? And, and um, uh, let's, let's just start, you know, with, the, I guess, the evolution of, the, of that. Well, I, you know, I, I quote quite a bit from H.L. Mencken, who was one of the great liberals, and I, I'm a classical liberal. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a, an old-fashioned leftist that does not, you know, hates the left today because the left is not what it used to be. But H.L. Mencken was a great liberal uh, back in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But he had a great saying where he talked about practical politics uh, being nothing more than an endless series of hobgoblins designed to make the populace uh, clamorous to be led to safety. And that's exactly what our foreign policy has been, certainly since the, uh, the, the Spanish-American War of 1898, where uh, these hobgoblins are dragged. You could argue, actually, that the secessionists, I guess, during the Civil War were hobgoblins. But uh, these are uh, – so when, when the House of America Activities Committee was born out of the Cold War, and because Americans are so susceptible – to being of these foreign demons that are dangled before him. They went basically right from Hitler and the Nazis, the greatest demons of all, uh, to uh, and, and fighting alongside the Soviets. And the Nazis would not have been defeated if it wasn't for the Soviets. And uh, they were our allies. And then suddenly, at the end of the war, suddenly we quickly converted and instantly went from uh, Uncle Joe Stalin to the Iron Curtain and the Cold War. And uh, then we began seeing commies everywhere and communists everywhere where before we had seen uh you know nazis and uh you know america firsters you know the, i go through all that in the crimes and cover-ups as well they were demonized earlier the people didn't want us to get involved in world war ii soon as the cold war started we started looking for commies and reds and everybody especially in hollywood became uh, in the entertainment became uh, suspect in the eyes anybody on the left that was questioning tradition Questioning anything that uh, that uh, the that people you know that was considered American, whatever that meant, uh, became un-Americans. And uh, I uh, I defend Joe McCarthy 
in crimes and cover-ups. I, I had the delicate de- balancing act of I come to the defense of Joe McCarthy and the Rosenbergs. I think they were both. <laughs> they, they both were, I think, victims of, for different reasons of that uh, phony I, – I believe it was a phony Cold War. But well, McCarthy- just, uh, just Let me just pick up on that, uh, McCarthy, because as you point out in the book, uh, I guess because of you know pop culture, we tend to associate Senator McCarthy with right. the Hollywood – you know the witch trials. Right. But he wasn't part of that, right? No, and, and just the fact that you know it was the House Un-American Activities Committee. Joe McCarthy wasn't in the House; he was the senator, so he had nothing to do with that. But nobody knows, you know, and nobody talks about the people on the on the HUAC, H-U-U-A-C, the House Un-American Activities Committee. McCarthy didn't have an Un-American Activities Committee. He, he investigated. He was primarily investigating uh, infiltration of the government, and he really didn't get in trouble until he started going after the army. And that's when Harry Truman and the Truman administration, and even Eisenhower, went crazy on him. But uh, because he was, again, going after Big Fry. But the House Un American Activities Committee, uh, they're the ones that ruined lives and, and blacklisted people in Hollywood. McCarthy never did that. And uh, so I think it's, it's really unfair. And, but again, that's Americans don't know their history, and the court historians are dishonest. So they kind of lump everything together and call it a period of McCarthyism. And I think that's terribly unfair. But that's you know the the people who were considered un-American. The the idea of un-Americanism really goes back to the Civil War because Lincoln I don't think called them un-Americans, but it was that's he's basically the first people to uh, call um, to call someone who uh, who you know who doesn't want to go to war or whatever to come up with a name for them, and uh, certainly we saw that with uh, the World War II era. Where FDR again demonized the Peasers, you know, and we think of Neville Chamberlain today, and uh, John F. Kennedy's dad, Joseph P. Kennedy, was friends with Neville Chamberlain. So he's, we just we throw that word appeaser around. Now, I don't know if Lincoln used the actual word appeaser, but he certainly meant that when he talked about people in the North who were uh, not sympathetic to his war policies and thought maybe it might be better to try diplomacy. So basically, ever since Lincoln. People who are uh, questioning a particular war effort and want to try to be diplomatic rather than uh, you know, to, uh, to just go headfirst into war and lose lots of human lives are considered appeasers. So appeasers is a short jump from appeasers to uh, un-Americans. And by the, uh, the 50s, that became very popular by the, very, you know, the name of the House Committee, the House Un-American Activities Committee. But it's very relevant today because we're, we're very close to that ter- period again, except for at that time, the un-Americans were on the left, on the far left, and today the un-Americans would be on the far right, and they would be called insurrectionists. You're seeing now they want to I mean, just look at the way they've demonized parents who are just trying to confront their school boards about their children's education. They want to call them domestic terrorists. So they've come up with even more powerful names uh, for this, but it's all part of the same stew. I mean, these, this is all the same mindset where you can't handle the, the opposition in any kind of debate or any kind of intellectual discourse, so you demonize them. You come up with the most powerful names possible, and in the worst case scenarios, from Lincoln to January 6th, you throw them in prison. I mean, you know, and how I pointed out, how different early is that from? What the Soviets did. I mean, you know, Washington D.C. is in Siberia, but it's the same concept where we're going to put you in prison for uh, for your uh, basically thought crimes. 
it, yeah, it's interesting that there was an actual attempted, I suppose, insurrection on the uh, was the um, the U.S. Capitol building. There were there were uh, there was a firebombing in the was it the early 1980s? I mean, this was an actual terrorist attack, right? They they sure. uh, uh, and I believe the the ringleader or one of the ringleaders of that attack um, was jailed and then was. Uh, pardoned by President Clinton, and now she holds kind of a uh, a position. Bernadette Ayers, I think you. Yeah, I think it's right with Black Lives Matter, isn't she? Like the uh, fairly. Oh no, no, that's not Bernadette. That's somebody else. Yes, yes, you're right. She, she is, and and that's you know, I I go back even uh, farther than that. In the, I think it was maybe the early '70s, late '60s, early '70s, the Black Panthers, fully armed Black Panthers, with uh, you know assault, real assault weapons. Marched into the uh, California State Capitol, and they uh, would again full not not like the insurrectionists. They didn't find a single weapon on the protesters in January six. Literally, I think one woman was arrested because she had a tambourine. Literally, that was a weapon. No guns were found anywhere uh, on the protesters. Uh, and this was this was at a period in the sixties when you could argue racism, white racism, was rampant. If you want to talk about white supremacy, well, it. It still existed then. So here you had Black Panthers who represented the antithesis of that, fully armed, walking into the state capitol, dominated by white supremacy. And what happened to them? Were they gunned down by police, arrested? No, nothing. They came and talked to them rationally. Uh, They did take their weapons, but they went on their way, and they weren't even charged with disturbing the peace. Now, this again, this was uh, over 50 years ago. So compare that to the way that people that were treated on January 6th. And again, it's there's always been a double standard. You, you mentioned the 80s uh, <clears throat> firebombing. And that's why I, you know, the, I object so strongly when I hear people call that an insurrection. It was ridiculous. It was a day at the park and uh, led primarily by government uh, undercover agents <clears throat> who will never be arrested as in all these uh, riots. But uh, the mindset that we have to demonize our opponents like this and we have to punish them Unfortunately, has existed for a long time. Again, I guess it did start with the Alien and Sedition Acts under John Adams. I don't, I don't think that that many people were imprisoned under the Alien and Sedition Acts. But um, afterwards, it was quickly repealed as soon as Thomas Jefferson. One of the many great things about Jefferson is he walked the walk, and that was a big campaign promise of his. And as soon as he got into office, unlike Donald Trump, for instance, who did nothing that he campaigned on, uh, as soon as Jefferson got into office, he he instantly repealed the Alien and Sedition Acts, and everyone jailed under it was freed. So, uh, but again, Lincoln overturned all that because once he did that, once you had Reconstruction in the South, American history, the American form of government was changed. And I don't think many people realize that we went much, you know, it was much more than going from a uh, plural to a singular United States. Uh, we changed completely. Lincoln created the first imperial presidency. No one, no, you know, he's the first one to say, basically say, I can do whatever I want. I'm the commander in chief. And uh, he also subverted the legislative branch. You know, one of the great things about our government is the separation of powers. And uh, it was, you know, th- that was the idea that no, no, there shouldn't be too much concentration of power anywhere. So the judiciary, the executive and the legislative will offset each other. Don, I got to jump in again. Another time gotcha. out. 
Don Jeffries, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, updated paperback edition. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Don Jeffrey stays with us, and uh, he will be with us for the full two hours, and we will open up the phone lines in the second hour. And also, if you're in the YouTube live chat and you have a question, uh, prepare those as well. And my live stream producer, Ryan White, will uh, curate those and send them my way. And I think what he'd like you to do is put Strange Planet in the... Um, in the uh, chat in your next to your question. That way it's easier for Ryan to find those and uh, send them my way. Um, so you talk about, you know, you are a classical liberal. So what has happened uh, to the left? Would you, would you agree that what we are now seeing with the left, these are, these are avowed Marxists? Well, you know, I don't. I shy away from from labels because uh, I, I I think we throw the name uh, com, throw communist and Nazi, racist, Marxist, all that. I think we throw. I mean, I just think what we're dealing with are incredible authoritarians. I think we're dealing with people who don't have any respect for the Bill of Rights, for what's left of our civil liberties. And I think you know, I started out uh, being politically aware as a teenager. And Mark Lane was my first mentor and hero, uh, the first, crit- the most famous critic of the Warren Report. Uh, so it was just more than even getting into the JFK assassination and realizing what a fraud uh, the Warren Report was, what a lie it was. I admired civil libertarians, and Mark Lane was one. Nat Hentoff was another good one that was around then. Hugh Hefner's Playboy philosophy. Uh, it was a lot more than naked women. He had, his Playboy philosophy was great. It was kind of libertarian and civil libertarian combination but i was i was drawn to that i was you know, from a tradition of loving the american revolution patrick henry's words which were taken from Voltaire's, about i i may not agree with what you say but i'll defend in my dying day you're right to say it and that struck a chord in me as a little kid i thought that was wow what a great idea and it's really almost like you know the golden rule isn't it do unto others you'd have them do unto you so basically free speech is built upon the golden rule really and so as a leftist, I was committed to, uh, you know, I, I thought prisoners were being mistreated then. I was against capital punishment. I was against war. I was pro-peace. I was uh, for fair wages and, and, and working conditions for workers, workers' rights, all the stuff the left used to be for. And gradually, all that went away, and today's left is unrecognizable. It would be unrecognizable to Thomas Jefferson or Charles Dickens in England classical leftists or classical liberals like H.L. Uh, Mencken, certainly Huey Lawn, the great populist, that today's left doesn't even believe in free speech. And you can see that by what's happening to the so-called insurrectionists in Washington, D.C. They're there because the left doesn't, the, the woke left, and that's what the, the woke left is way different from the left that I'm on. And, you know, my friends that I still have, like Naomi Wolf and Cindy Sheehan, uh, Cynthia McKinney, who I just interviewed uh, the other day over the weekend, these are great people on the left, but they're, they don't have any power anymore and any real platform anymore because they're not welcome in the, by the woke left. The woke left wants to punish their enemies. And again, this goes back to Lincoln. Lincoln was the first one that said, you know, hey, you, you don't support my war measures. You don't support what I'm doing. You don't have to be a member of the Confederacy. You're an appeaser, basically. I mean, he, he had that great comment about must I, must I shoot a poor 
a deserter, but let the uh, the wily agitator that got him to desert get off scot free, and that that was his first. Uh, he was he fired the first shot, I think, in that kind of un-Americanism mindset, and we see today the left has bought it, hook, line, and sinker, because that's. I mean, I have people that uh, <clears throat> excuse me when I was. Uh, Talking about how ridiculous the uh, the prosecutions were putting these people in jail for the, for protesting and their constitutional right. Uh, so many people told me they should be hung. They want to hang people. They, I mean, this this the the left today is again, and I, as someone who I you know I, the left back then, uh, uh, you know, we didn't believe in capital punishment for serial killers, but now today's left wants capital punishment for people who basically supported Donald Trump. That's their idea. And I, you know, I can't be associated with that kind of left. It's it's mindless. It's, uh, I mean, yeah, you can call it Marxist. You could call it Nazism. I mean, it's 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 a, a a group think, a mob mentality. And these are the kind of people that not that long ago used to take the family out for a picnic and watch the public hanging. If they decided to hang some of the insurrectionists, I think those those leftists today would. Prepare a picnic lunch and bring the kids out and watch it. I really think that they they have the same kind of mindset that I thought we left behind a long time ago. Yeah, I, I know we have to be careful about throwing isms around. But when you look at what Nikita Khrushchev said mm-hmm. back in in the um, the nineteen early sixties that we could will bring America down without firing a shot. Right. And then you look at. Um, was it uh, Yuri, the uh, the Soviet KGB defector that came to Canada, Yuri Bezmenov, mm-hmm. who talked about, you know, everything that was happening in America was all part of this, the, the Soviet playbook, the communist playbook. First, you demoralize America. Uh, then you then you destabilize America. That's stage two. Stage three is you create a crisis. And stage four is it becomes the new normalcy. When you, I mean, when you look at what has been happening in America since the 1960s and how it coincides with Bezmenov's statements and, and Khrushchev's statements about bringing down America. Uh, and you look at the, the present state of the left, not only, uh, you know, wokeism, which again, you know, th- this idea that, that we have to get the state inserted between parents and their own children. All of this stuff is happening. I mean, how else can you not, how else can you describe it except this is this is part of a, a Marxist takeover of America. Well, you could certainly. I mean, I'm familiar with you know Marx's original planks and you know how all, all of them have come to be or whatever. But I think there's always been two lefts in America, and I think you've all at least since the the Soviet you know the Russian Revolution, which wasn't Russian at all. I mean, I'd urge people to read uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. They want to get an idea how Russian that revolution was. I mean, you know, Lev Br- uh, Trotsky's real name was Lev Bronstein, and he came from New York City. So I don't know what you know what kind of a Russian he was, and there were, there were lots of people like that there, lots of finance behind that. Uh, but this, you always had like even then. Let's let's look at the World War One era. You had leftist people like Woodrow Wilson, establishment people like that, and you had people who were honest leftists like William Jennings Bryan. You had Robert LaFollette, who was an honest leftist. Eugene Debs, who was an honest socialist. H.L. Mencken, people, Huey Long was just coming up. But then, you know, when Huey Long came really into power, you had FDR. And those kind of – that was the establishment, the pro-war, the pro-authoritarian. And you could, you could argue they're the, those are the ones that had the Marxist leanings over following those precepts, the control. 
Because true liberalism, at least, you know, going back to Jefferson, Jefferson said that government is best, which governs the least. You know, liberalism used to have a right. lot of libertarianism in it, where you didn't want the government intruding into your that's lives. A, I mean, that's a conservative tenet now, right? Is right. small government. I've got to take another time out. This was a short segment. We'll come back and discuss further. Don Jeffries stays with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And we are back with Don Jeffries, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, the updated paperback edition now available, Amazon and uh, wherever good books are sold. Um, so whatever, what has happened with the American Civil Liberties Union? They, they seem pretty much – they seem to have vanished. Yeah, they don't care. I mean, and they recently released a statement, I think, last year where they basically announced that, hey, you know, we're not we're not concerned so much with civil liberties anymore, as our name would designate. Now we're going to be looking at racism and, you know, transphobia and all, you know, this, this stuff, again, that, that is part of identity politics. And that is what's so insidious. And I write about this all the time. So I get mistaken for a conservative. And I, I you know, I don't think anybody would ever consider me a conservative, but I, I guess I'm more on their side today because the the conservatives are more concerned about free speech and, and civil liberties. But I, I don't know if that's because they're the ones that are under attack and it's their free speech and civil liberties of being friends. I, I would hope that if they were in power, maybe they would be just as tolerant, but I don't know. Human nature is like that. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, and I think that's why the Bill of Rights was so important, and I'm, you know, in Hidden History Three, I'm writing a lot about George Mason and the, the original, you know, people that did not support the Constitution, and a lot, my, a lot of my favorite founding fathers didn't support the Constitution. They thought the Articles of Confederacy was better, were better, and uh, people like George Mason and Patrick Henry, for instance, uh, and they smelt a rat, you know, Patrick Henry said. Uh, but Mason made sure they put the Bill of Rights, and I think that's what really made the Constitution tolerable. Because without that Bill of Rights, you know, it, it, you really didn't – you had to delimiate. And what made it so incredible is that these, you know, these were considered God-given rights. And I think that's the problem, Richard, today is that America is so divided. Uh, in 1860, there were foundational principles that everyone agreed – the North and South agreed on. Uh, pretty much everyone believed in God, for instance, so religion was a factor everywhere. Uh, you had foundational principles like that. Everybody had basically, when you said, you know, if you're moral or immoral, pretty much everybody agreed what moral and immoral was. Today, I, I don't think there's a single foundational principle in America. And the reason why the Bill of Rights is so unpopular, I think, in a, a lot of low, woke leftists is because they were grants that there, there, weren't, there weren't rights granted by the government. They're protected by the government, but they're God given rights. The idea was that we are all born inherently with God-given rights. Well, if you have a huge chunk of America, I don't know, maybe a majority at this point, that don't believe in God, they're, they're not going to go for any God-given rights. So that's the problem we face today. And I think that the left has gone away from any concept of morality. And at, at this point, they're just it's vindictiveness. Uh, they believe, and again, ironically, like another one of my books, Bullyocracy, they're bullies much of the time, and all bullying is based on the concept of might makes right. If you can yell the loudest or hit the hardest, then you're right. But That's this didn't you, happen by accident, right? Don't you think that this no, was no. this was a concerted effort? Somebody Absolutely. is Absolutely. pulling the strings here. Absolutely, and that's that's the that's the you know that's why people you know I, in the crimes and cover-ups I write about the Illuminati, which was a real thing. Now, whether it still is a real thing, of course, is up into debate. But 
Uh, for people who poo-poo it, no. Adam Weishaupt was a historical figure. I have a lot about it in crimes and cover-ups that people can read about it. And uh, I think they're probably the – I mean I don't know what the you know what they call themselves or whatever, but I think there's a group above the political level. The people, certainly you look at people like Joe Biden and no one can possibly believe he's in charge of anything. And I think that's a lot of our presidents have been that way and a lot of our politicians. Somebody's pulling the string. So it's the puppet masters we're looking for. And I suspect, you know, we, we might not even know their names or we might not know who they are, but I think there is a group above it all. You're right. None of this is random. There's a pattern. I call it, uh, it's usually based on gradualism, you know, the, the old boiling, the, the frog boiling and, and boiling and slowly boiling in the water analogy that we heard so much about. But the problem is they seem to, the, the last year and a half, since this COVID narrative began, they seem like they've scrapped that gradualism narrative that they've been working on for a long time, where things gradually they make incremental, so you don't you don't really notice it because it's it's and then you realize, wow, wait, this you know we used to have that right, or you know we didn't used to say that. Now it's just it's it, things are happening so fast that gradualism has gone out the window, and they're just using this fear of something to really just make radical transformations and they're just you know they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink out there they're no one is pretending to care for your rights anymore i mean just look at you want to look at the future i mean just look at victoria australia and i'm afraid you know we could be like that soon where literally i mean the, the guy recently i was listening to a tape where you know he was he was arrested by police because the police asked him he couldn't say why he was in this particular place in public you have no reason to be here i mean do we really want that kind of society well Apparently, probably a majority of Americans do. I think you, you can see by the way they're allowing these things to happen. And again, I don't think that all oh, this is, is a this is warp speed, not just the vaccine, but the the tyranny here in response to it. I think uh, it didn't happen overnight. That we, you know, there was a lot, as you say, a lot of planning, a lot of brainwashing, and you look at the indoctrinated Americans, how indoctrinated they are. They can't think for themselves. You can't reason with them. And uh, so, I don't know, maybe I'm foolish to be writing history for them because they, they seem to be historically illiterate. But hopefully there's enough of you out there that are interested enough that are awake. But uh, it's, it's, we're, we're living in very, very difficult times, and I, I struggle to maintain any hope. But uh, things are looking pretty bleak right now. Uh, I do want to come back to this uh, discussion in an hour or two, but I just, we just have a couple minutes here. I just want to circle back to something you said a little bit earlier, and that is the um, – uh, Thomas or Patrick Henry thought that the the uh, the Constitution was a he smelled a rat, yeah. and that that uh, many of the founding fathers preferred the Articles of Confederacy. How was that different than the Constitution? Well, I think the Articles of Confederacy again were just a loose confederation of states, and they called again the Articles of Confederation. And you know that's there's a reason why the Southern states the, the Southern states basically were objecting to the Constitution as well. You know, basically all those years later, 90 years later, whatever. And uh, they thought that – I mean I personally think the Constitution with the Bill of Rights – now without the Bill of Rights, I have big problems with it too. With the Bill of Rights, I think it created about as perfect a form of government as you can. It struck a balance with the balance of powers if they had been allowed to stay. Unfortunately, they were shattered forever under Lincoln. But uh, the Articles of Confederation really gave very little authority to the central government. It was just basically all you know. The original colonies were, were going to band together under a loose confederation. We have common interest, but we have individual states. We have state sovereignty. So the Constitution did change that. 
to some degree. But I, I, I think it was it was more organized, and I think it was a good thing. I would have voted for it with the Bill of Rights, but unfortunately, once Lincoln got a hold of it and shattered the Constitution, and the United States became a plural state sovereignty was shattered forever and you know you you had the dixiecrats and everything later where people were still fighting for states rights but a lot of that involves you know they were just they wanted segregation and so forth but uh it's we are not the same certainly people like patrick henry and george mason would be really appalled they would have been appalled at lincoln let alone the the monstrosity that the uh, the federal leviathan is today all right, we uh, we have to step away just for a moment, and we will uh, launch into hour two. Don Jeffries, crimes and cover-ups in American politics, the new updated paperback edition, also uh, bullyocracy, survival of the richest, and hidden history part three coming uh, to a bookstore or Amazon very soon. We hope uh, back with uh, more of our conversation and your questions and comments and phone calls all ahead on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Sarah. Don't go away. 